Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Belladonna delivers extreme advice to the delighted horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me, but it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 464. The Drabblecast is an audio fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we've got a really creepy one for you folks, so hold on. We bring you a Drabblecast original story called The Followers Revel by Jonathan Louise Duckworth. Jonathan's a completely normal, entirely human person with the right number of heads and everything. He received his MFA from Florida International University. His speculative fiction work appears in Pseudopod, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Southwest Review, Flash Fiction Online, and elsewhere. He's a PhD student at the University of North Texas, where he serves as the interviews editor at American Literary Review, and he's also an active HWA member. So without further ado, we bring you The Followers Revel by Jonathan Louise Duckworth. Postcard. Arrival in the Adirondacks. Postmarked November 9th, 1912. From Thomas Campbell, Roughneck Junction, Adirondack Park, New York. To Dorothea Campbell, 635 Park Avenue, number 23, New York, New York. Obverse. A charcoal sketch of the platform of Roughneck Junction, with the slope of Roughneck Mountain and the shore of Drain Lake in the background. The mountainside trees, rendered as jagged, hatched slashes, taper into a fine dust further up the slope. The sketch is consistent with the other artwork attributed to the pioneering documentarian filmmaker Thomas Campbell. Reverse. In a tidy but sharply slanted hand, Thomas Campbell writes to his wife, Dorothea Campbell, 1890-1986. to 
The message reads, Beloved Dora, how to describe the smell of spruce, the brisk mountain air that floats down to needle my lungs, the sun on the lake, the crunch of clean snow underfoot, the splendid emptiness of it all. There is not a house or cabin visible any way you might look. What want for a restaurant or ragtime club have these woods? What want for the bray and grumble of motor cars have these mountains? I've scarcely been here an hour and not yet met my patron, nor made the acquaintance of the likely and rugged men who will be my picture's dramatis persona, and yet I'm already giddy with the promise of this unspoiled country and its denizens. When my work is done, let's we return to these mountains together, for the romance and splendor such climbs might offer us. Please write back to me post-haste, transmit my regards to your mother, and tell me how little Carolyn is adjusting to her new bedroom. Ever your smitten schoolboy, confident and devoted servant, Thomas. Reel number one, loggers at work. Format, 35 millimeter celluloid. Length, 17 minutes and 29 seconds. Description, the film begins with a shot of a pair of sleeping loggers in their shared bunk within the bunkhouse. At 025, the first of the loggers stirs from the top bunk and rises from under his covers, followed soon after by the other. From 038 to 159, the film follows the loggers at their breakfast, with intermittent shots of the cooks at work on their Bussy and McLeod cast-iron ranges, preparing the meal, including fried doughnuts and baked beans. After some shots of the wilderness from 245 to 1327, the film details the day-to-day -day work of the Adirondack loggers working for the Drain Timber Company, felling trees, chopping them into logs, loading the logs onto oxen-driven sleds and treaded steam hauler before launching them into the water where Drain Lake flows into the Hudson River, where after log drivers, river pigs, guide the logs' progress with PV sticks. Intermingled with the shots of work are scenes of recreation and relaxation, such as a scene starting at 7.15 where a white-haired logger in his bunkhouse whittles a many-segmented insect from a tree branch, or a scene of two loggers locking arms and dancing at 8.28. At 9.42, while following the work of the pair of engineers who maintain the Lombard steam log hauler, the camera drifts from their work and captures a flicker of movement further out in the forest. A close inspection of the frame at 9.47 shows an obscure, lanky, roughly human shape moving through the woods. The figure seems to turn to regard the camera, and as it turns the branching antlers radiating from its head become apparent. At 12.17, while a team of loggers sit around a campfire and eat an afternoon meal of beans and cornbread, one logger in the background appears to be shaving his head with a rip saw, holding the saw blade with both hands and scraping at his scalp. None of the other loggers seem to remark this, and indeed, several others walk directly past him unbothered. From 1327 to the end, the film focuses on the snowy wilderness, with occasional appearances by loggers, such as at 1529, when once more loggers are shown loading timber into an oxen sled. At 1538, a logger bends down to lift the end of a wayward log. He wears a plaid jacket, against which the dark shape of a foot-long serpentine creature shows starkly. A closer inspection of the frames between 1536 and 1541 reveals the snake has numerous small limbs and a pair of long head feelers as well as sizable mandibles. The logger evinces no concern even after noticing the creature's presence on his sleeve. 
From 1715 to 1722, the film tracks the slow descent of the sun over Drain Lake, while small pancakes of ice drift across the surface. The final shot is of the bunkhouses at night, with slender whiskers of smoke rising from the chimneys. Postcard. Dinner at Drain Castle. Postmarked November 11th, 1912. From Thomas Campbell, Roughneck Junction, Adirondack Park, New York. To Dorothea Campbell, 635 Park Avenue, number 23, New York, New York. Obverse. A charcoal sketch in the same style as the previous postcard. This sketch is split-paneled, with the left half showing an exterior rendering of Drain Castle, home of industrialist Henry Prospo Drain, 1839-1919, while the right half is an interior scene from the perspective of the unseen observer, Campbell. The exterior scene of Drain Castle makes use of the charcoal medium's facility for contrast with the dark granite facade of Drain Castle athwart the snowy slope of Roughneck Mountain. The composition exaggerates the height and prominence of Drain Castle's three Gothic Revival-style parapets and depicts a large waxing crescent moon sitting just above the tallest of said towers. The interior scene depicts a banquet table set with a generous assortment of food and drink, including a half-carved roast boar on a platter and champagne in an ice bucket. Two individuals are depicted, one turned toward the observer and engaged in conversation, the other sitting to the side of the first, turned away and in profile. The first person, likely 20th century mystic William B. W. Wallace Riser, is a gentleman of middle age with shoulder-length black hair, prominent eyebrows, and a thick handlebar mustache, dressed in a robe with alchemical symbols for fire and for earth on the sleeves. The second gentleman, Henry P. Drain, is elderly, white-haired, and full-bearded, wearing half-moon spectacles and a three-piece suit with a single-breasted waistcoat. Reverse. Campbell writes, Beloved Dora, I've enjoyed the most stimulating and electric of evenings with my host, Mr. Drain and his esteemed friend, Mr. Riser, a magnetic orator and esoteric scholar. Listening to Mr. R, I perceived a mind so capacious it contained my own with room to spare. Mr. D, though more reserved, was scintillating in his own right, describing how he and his workmen transformed a mountainside into a latter-day Xanadu. D is a powerfully religious man, and tells me he sees God everywhere, even in human suffering. Now, lest you think I wasn't being myself, I talked my share of ears off too. Both men seemed eager to learn about my trade. D perceives motion pictures recruitment potential. Even though he pays a fair wage, you wouldn't believe how well-fed these miners and loggers are, he's always short on workers. He hopes my film can convince more men to leave the city for an honest wage and the thrill of this alpine splendor. I hope to hear from you soon. D tells me the post is slow to arrive this near to winter, but I'll positively die if I have to wait another day for your reply. Ever your chatterbox, nomad, and co-conspirator, Thomas. Reel number two, Into the Mines. Format, 35mm celluloid. Description, the film begins with a shot of twin columns of miners, one column entering the Prospero mine, the other exiting as one shift replaces the other. Notably, the departing column, many of the men mustachioed, show exuberant smiles as they pass the camera. 
At 47, a close-up shows a sizable chunk of magnetite, iron ore, in the gloved hands of a miner, while another miner holds a handful of small crystals, most likely garnets. From 59 to 652, the film shows life in the company town, a cluster of log cabins built in a clearing at the base of Roughneck Mountain. Many scenes show the presence of wives and children among the workers, as well as the workings of a schoolhouse where miners' children learn grammar and mathematics. At 419, a chalkboard is shown, where the alchemical symbols of fire, earth, and iron, identical to the male symbol, drawn alongside a base multiplication table. Another unidentified symbol appears beneath the alchemical figures, a centipede, beside which the words Father is drawn. Beneath this symbol, a pair of antlers appear, besides which is the word follower. Other scenes in this section show the medical care miners receive with camp doctors and a recreational hall where miners listen to music on phonograms. From the seventh minute to 1902, the film then shows the daily work of the miners in the shafts, detailing their methods and equipment, which ranges from simple pickaxes to dynamite to carbide lamps and gasoline-powered pumps. Starting at 8.35 till 10.42, the film showcases a very innovative technique of filming from the front of a minecart as it descends into the tunnels, giving a first-person perspective. At 11.01, miners begin slipping sticks of dynamite into pre-drilled holes in preparation for blasting. At 11.21, the rock is blasted, and after the smoke clears, a viscous, black substance seeps up from the blasting site, and subsequently many of the miners will be shown coated in the same liquid. From 13.01 to 13.59, a scene shows miners loading ore into carts. From 1352, rat-sized insects resembling centipedes can be seen swarming over the miners, who continue working without interruption. After more scenes in the mines, 1745 to 1753 depicts teams of miners outside of the mine, struggling in concert with oxen and a Lombard steam hauler to drag chains and ropes, paying into the mine shaft, as if trying to haul something immense up to the surface. Whether they are successful or not isn't shown. The final three minutes, from 1902 to 2138, is a continuous static shot of the mouth of Prospero Mine, an almost perfect circle cut into the mountainside. Postcard. The Chapel in the Woods. Postmarked November 22, 1912. From Thomas Campbell, Roughneck Junction, Adirondack Park, New York to Dorothea Campbell, 635 Park Avenue, number 23, New York, New York. Obverse. A charcoal sketch of a wooden structure surrounded by snow-laden pines and spruces and hemlocks. The structure depicted is rustic and simple, with certain design elements borrowed from early modern European cottages, such as an A-frame hay-thatched roof with eaves that nearly reach the snowy ground. There are footsteps in the snow leading toward the chapel's circular wooden door. Two sets of human feet, and between them hoof prints, closely resembling moose prints, two thick teardrops with a pair of dots underneath. The hoof prints fall in pairs, like the human tracks beside them. A thick billow of black smoke rises from the chapel's chimney, and in lieu of a cross, a set of moose antlers decorates the gable, while centipedes have been etched onto the door. Reverse. The writing is sloppier than in prior postcards, with many words illegible or crossed out. 
Unlike the previous postcards, the message is written in a pencil rather than pen. The message reads, Beloved Dora, there are beautiful songs here, some sung by human voices such to drown us, me, the others of a musical no mortal throat could shape. I have come out here ten times now in between my work, my important work, and I listened until my face was become entirely wind-burnt. I have not received your correspondence, but I trust we shall, will see each other to hold your warm hand in mine, will be better medicine than the quack doctor prescribed. The world is bigger and older than we think, and the wars we humans wage our schoolyard scuffles compared to the true war. I want to help fight that war, but I'm afraid I may not be strong enough. If the follower accepts me, then all will be well. And if not, give my best to the neighbors and keep Carolyn safe. I have much to teach both of you when my duty work is finished and I return to the city's lights. I'm positively sick of all the love I feel sick of love for you, and I ache for our reunion. All is well. I am a guest here. He who advocates on behalf of your soul. Thomas. Reel number three. Expiation. Format. 35 millimeter celluloid. Length 1212. Description. The reel begins with a long, brooding shot of a crackling bonfire built from thick logs and a tall pile of branches. In the background, a structure built with an A-frame roof of thatched hay stands in the shadows beyond the fire's reach. At thirty-nine, two figures walk into frame and come to stand between the camera and the bonfire. Both wear robes embroidered with alchemical symbols. The figure on the left is recognizable by the hair and mustache as B.W. Riser. The figure to the right towers over Riser, despite its hunched posture, and its robes conceal its shape, but there is the suggestion of some rigid, wide structure underneath its hood. The scene then changes, and now the shadows of the flickering bonfire roll as dark, oily waves over the assembled faces of three separate columns of people. Most are men, but within the ranks of all three columns are a smattering of women and even a few young children. The rightward column comprises a dozen men and two women all standing upright, dressed in robes like risers. The middle column, some twenty men, five women and three children, are all kneeling. They're dressed in common cold-weather clothes, but even in the low lighting and poor film quality, their discomfort is evident as gusts of snow blow through their ranks. The final leftward column is thirteen strong, nine men and four women, no children. These people lay prostrate in the snow, their naked backs heaving and writhing in the cold, their hands stretched out in front of them, trussed with rope bindings. Each column is inspected, given several seconds of screen time before the camera cuts back briefly to Riser and the hooded giant. From 148 to 623, the camera observes ritualistic dances and pantomimes performed by the robed members of the rightward column as they circle the bonfire. 
Several of these performers shed their robes, revealing themselves naked underneath, while one of the disrobed men wears a costume that dimly resembles certain feathered regalia of various tribal societies, only in place of feathers rigid, carved spines of wood radiate from his body, approximating the form of insectile legs. Another performer, also stripped down, wears moose antlers, and at 2.27 the antlered performer begins walking on his hands and knees in the snow until the centipede performer embraces him. The pair then rise together, link arms, and dance with abandon. From 4.29 to 6.23, the robed men, both stripped and clothed, fall to the ground and writhe and wriggle on the frozen earth like worms. At 6.24, the camera fixates on some large burrows in the earth in an indeterminate location from which naked men wriggle out, crawling on their bellies over the snow. At 7.09, the camera fixates on the chapel, showing an immensely magnified full moon presiding over the bonfire revel. At 7.24, the camera focuses on Riser with a medium, chest-high close-up shot. Riser holds up a heavy woodcutting axe over his head and begins to speak for about twenty seconds, but his words are indiscernible due to the antiquated frame rate. At 7.52, the shot expands to reveal a large, bearded man in logger's clothes, a head taller than Riser but still dwarfed by the hooded giant, comes and accepts the broad axe from Riser. After the axeman takes a few practice swings on a nearby stump, he then proceeds to the leftward column. Many of the prostrate have stopped moving, but still some try to squirm away. From 8.16 to 10.36, the camera watches with the unflinching nerve of glass and celluloid as the axeman moves up and down the column, carrying out a rote process with mechanical certainty and efficiency, a boot on the spinal column, pressing the victim into the dirt, followed by a powerful downward stroke, hewing heads from necks as easily as loggers hew the bark from timber. Some of the heads roll away from the bodies. Some settle in place where they fall. The camera keeps filming, the glass eye panning steadily to match the axeman's progress, the cameraman's hand turning to crank ever faithfully. The scene breaks from slaughter only once, from 9.52 to 10.09, to show some of the beheaded carcasses being carried by the plainclothes initiates to the human burrows and dumping them at the tunnel's mouths, whereupon eager, pale hands rise and grope like worms and find their prizes, dragging them into the dark. At 10.36, the camera rises on Riser once more, and he declares, And now the worthy will have their recompense. Shift focuses to the other figure, the forgotten giant, who now sheds its cloth cocoon, revealing its hidden form. At 10.52, the follower stands revealed, ancient, impossibly tall and lanky, dark and hirsute, wrong-faced, antlered, a thing fallen into the taxonomic cracks between primate and cloven-hoofed beast, warped but powerful. Standing to its full height, the creature seems impossible, its human legs too skinny to support its broad moose antlers. The follower somehow shambles forth on its toothpick limbs and awkward hooved feet, and now its belly, a vessel engorged and visibly squirming with a living manifest, juts out from its skeletal frame. From 11.09 to 12.01, the camera dares stray closer to the follower, to see from close as it kneels before the middle column of initiates. 
The follower opens its broad, servine jaw and lets its tongue dangle limp as its mouth becomes a chute for the squirming passengers of its body, and the initiates open their own mouths to receive, one by one, the gift. Centipedes travel from one mouth to another. Some initiates manage to accept the gift without falling, others convulse and fall to their sides and wriggle and writhe in the snow and dirt. The final image from 1202 to 1212 is of Riser, shot such that the engorged moon crowns his head. A shadow falls over the brilliant moon, the jagged, many-legged silhouette of a centipede. Postcard my window at dawn. Postmarked December 1st, 1912. From Thomas Campbell, Roughneck Junction, Adirondack Park, New York, to Dorothea Campbell, 635 Park Avenue, New York, New York. A verse, a pencil sketch of a simple box frame window. The sketch's style is much less elaborate than the other postcard images, with much less detailed shading work. Reverse. The writing is more restrained and lucid than the prior postcard's message, with no strike-throughs or illegible words. The message reads, Beloved Dora, I'm happy to report I'll soon be home. Mr. Drain and Mr. Riser are satisfied with my work and have given their blessing for me to return to the city. Today is my final morning here on the mountain, and soon I'll be on a train to cinch shut the frayed threading that ties us two together. Please don't take to heart my silliness I might have strained my last postcard with. The truth is, darling, I've been feeling positively something other than myself lately. It's been days since I've seen the sun, but the fog is beautiful in its own way, too. If this postcard reaches you before I do, and if I fail to turn up, please don't look for me, and don't worry. All that will mean is that I've found somewhere safe. Give my love to Carolyn, your ever-devoted husband, Thomas. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. And I used to want to be a lumberjack. What was I thinking? If the fire in the sky aliens don't get you, the centipede cults will. There's got to be some other way to get wood. Well, my dearest listener, I have enjoyed the most electric and stimulating of evenings with you, but I write to let you know that that's our show for this week. Let us return to these mountains together for the romance and splendor such climbs might offer us. Transmit my regards to your mother. And if you enjoyed our story and want to help support the show, join the Drebblecast Patreon, where your support allows us to pay authors and produce stories for the world to hear. It's at patreon.com slash Drebblecast. And otherwise, hey, write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist, Drabblecast art director, Bo Kyer. Check out more of his awesome work at bokyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Cameron Howard, Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Dave Ballard, Bart Epstein, Sean Gentry, Jocelyn Gerwig, Melissa 
Alyssa Knight, Audrey Kozial, Ashley L, Lydia Moon, Nicole Neely, Joseph Pietras, Wiley Scott, the missing cap of your chapstick, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to accept the gift. He mutters these words to his lackey, but when it comes, put this in his butt. Drop him off a few miles out of Bridgedale, and we'll see if he keeps his mouth shut. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.